Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to another edition of the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Ryan Ray here. Josh Shelton has the day off again. The guy gets more vacation than anybody I know in the business, but have no fear. I went to NAEP this past week, and I got to sit down with Alan Gilmore. If you don't know who Alan Gilmore is, he is the former CEO of Drilling Info and now serves as their chairman, and he's also the chairman of TIPRO. If you're not familiar with TIPRO, that's the Texas Independent Producers and Royalty Owners. And so we'll link to uh, TIPRO in the show notes so you can go check it out. Had a great time with Alan. Had a great time at NAEP. It was a good time there. Um, it was a different feel than the than the earlier NAEP, but it was still a good good conference and uh, enjoyed my time there. So won't keep you any longer. Without further ado, here is Alan Gilmer. Well, Alan, it's good to see you at NAEP and finally meet you. I've heard about your company and your product for so long now, it's nice to finally actually put a face with a name. I sure enjoy being here. Thanks so much. Well, let's get into it. Um, $50 oil, it seems like we just can't get past that margin. Every time we get up above 50 even for a day or two, it comes right back down. What's your take on the price of WTI? Will, will we be able to get above 50 or is 50 kind of the ceiling for right now? You know, I think a lot of people are, are I think there's a, a lot of, a lot of pent-up hedges that I think once you hit 50, people are trying to unwind some positions or what have you. Uh, I I have a very I have kind of a different take than some of my folks and uh, and most of the other experts with regards to uh, the variability of oil pricing. Yeah, you know, and that has to do with the fact that uh, you know I think that uh, what happens is news drives oil from a baseline. And I think right now our baseline is probably in the 45 to 48 range. And so various news drives it below that and above that a certain amount. And once enough news starts to compile that, uh, that's either positive or negative, then it drives a new baseline. And, and those baselines are, they're more psychological than they are real. You know, it has to do with, uh, uh, you know, right now the reason that we're having a 48 or $50 baseline is because, you know, that's roughly, uh, you know, it, it's in the still being able to increase Texas production or U.S. production range, although not hugely. It's not going to, it's not going to swamp the markets on that stuff. And we do kind of understand uh, those kind of uh, issues right now. The difference is every year that that kind of baseline goes down a little bit. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, uh, a postponement or a cancellation of trillions of dollars of capital expenditures over the last three years are going to play into the whole, uh, you know, producibility of the rest of the world. Yeah, um, you know, there's a couple indicators, and um, you guys have a new service I want to talk about that's tied into this. It seems you talk about, you know, these baselines. Every week you see the this, the the, uh, the crude oil report, you know, is, is there is we, we gaining barrels or we losing barrels? What's going on there? And also the rig count. Um, do you think that the analysts are overreacting to these indicators because they're coming out on a weekly basis and sometimes they're not really telling the whole picture in my opinion it's just kind of a well this is what's going on this week but sometimes even with the storage report you know that's delayed information that you're looking at for maybe even a couple months depending on where the oil's coming from and stuff like that so is there a little bit of an overreaction on these weekly indicators well these weekly indicators can be completely misleading because they're just tiny snapshots of tiny things relative to a global market uh, I don't think it's any mistake, or I, I don't think it was a, uh, uh, when Saudi Arabia decided to start sending more oil to the Chinese markets than to the U.S. markets, 
I think a lot of that was based off the idea that you don't, we don't have visibility onto what Chinese storage is. We don't have any idea of how much Chinese are using or storage other than what's self, kind of self-reported that's never been very accurate. Whereas they send it to the United States and it goes into our storage facilities, then there's an accurate number that pops up and, uh, and then you have that. Then we have a lot of people that are looking at storage numbers that are not subtracting out the releases from the strategic petroleum reserves into that, which is a complete distortion of what's going on, you know, with regards to that. It's, it's suggesting that there's a lot more production than it really is. And, uh, you know, so there's all sorts of interesting little factoids that kind of layer into all this that, uh, that I think that people oftentimes make, make uh, uh, huge extrapolations out of data that's not necessarily telling them what they think they're telling, it's telling them. Yeah, and so do you think, well, let me touch on China real quick. I talked to a professor from Tanji University um, late last year, early this year, and he said that, you know, China's really stockpiling wool, and that's kind of get lost in, in the discussion here is that they're just buying it and holding it for mm-hmm. future plans that are kind of unknown. And uh, now how much, I don't rem- remember the numbers is, but, you know, it, you sit back and it seems like anytime I talk to someone about the, the price of wool or what's it, what it's going to look like, there's so many factors to consider. And it's so hard that to, to figure out which factor has the most weight. And then you start looking at these weekly indicators, and the weekly indicators come out. It was almost if we had the indicators more regularly, maybe it would bring a little bit more stability to the um, to the market. And that's kind of what you guys are doing with the rig count, because the rig count obviously plays a factor with the price. People see the rig count on Baker Hughes that comes out on Friday, and they react to that. And then you guys, tell us a little bit about what you have going on and how it's different than what Baker Hughes has. So we have a, a, a rig count that's somewhat different than the Baker Hughes rig count. It's always been... A you know, a higher number. It has to do with the fact that I think our cohort is a different cohort than of rigs than Baker Hughes has. Neither one of us have 100% complete monitoring of all the rigs that are out there, but we each have a cohort that we monitor, so it's great from a relative point of view. We, we monitor the rigs that we cover on a daily basis rather than a weekly basis, and we think that's important and Baker uh, Baker counts their rigs based off of rigs that are turning to the right on Wednesday and so there's a a real specific criteria there we count ours every day based off are they on a permitted location and have they reached TD or not and how do you know that compared to what Baker knows what's the advantage that you guys Because we have all the other we have all this other data that we're able to go out there and say ah okay here is an active permit they're coming onto an active permit. They're going out and doing this. If they're on a pad, we have ways of being able to determine which well they're drilling on the pad, which is a really difficult thing to go do. But, uh, and then we also have had this issue coming up over the last few years in which we've, we're spending more than one, you know, one rig to drill a well. So oftentimes you'll have a, you know, a rig to go in there and drill a whole bunch of vertical pilots, and then you'll have another rig, you know, a cold tubing unit or what have you come in there to do the the horizontal sides or what have you, we kind of count every rig that comes on to that location, whereas Baker's is very pure. It's turning to the right. Well, you know, we're excited because working with your team, we're going to be able to add that information to our, our website, and so we're excited to be able to give that to our listeners. One of the reasons, and this is no knock on Baker, uh, they shouldn't work their schedule around us, even though I'd like for them to, but they're not going to, is that uh, we had to quit including that data in our podcast because it came out after um, our show was released, and so we couldn't get a, an update on the, on the rig count. But you, you guys is, uh, is daily, I believe, right? Daily, yeah. And so yeah. we'll be able to report that back to our to our listeners, and they'll be able to go to our site or your site or other sites and, and find this information. And I, I like tracking the rig count just because just 
because I like to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know if it really makes me feel better or worse or if it should make me feel better or worse, but I, I do like to know it. But it's one of those stats that people like to uh, to cling to. And there's other things that, you know, if you look at the rig count, it's like, okay, well, the rig count is, you know, 950 or whatever. But it's like, well, how much more effective are the rigs than they were two, three years ago? And that kind of gets lost. And so, again, it kind of goes back to these complex factors that sometimes, especially for the average person who's out there in the oil patch working, there's just so much. And I, and I feel like it's the analysts of the industry or the traders, they, they kind of, they kind of, um, put a damper on the industry sometimes because you, you're out there, you're out in the oil patch and you're working and then all of a sudden the price is falling and it's like, well, I don't know the price really should have felt like that. It didn't seem like we did anything. Uh, I think a good example of this would be is a Pioneer stock the other day. Um, I, I don't know if you had, happened to see what happened to poor Pioneer, but it was, it was yeah. terrible. And I, off of, off of one, uh, off the one, uh, yeah, the one, the one interview. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you sit back, you look, and you go, I mean, you know, th- I think it was like $30 drop in a day or something like that. It was something crazy. And It was yeah. crazy. Based off of a report of gas oil ratio being different than what they had reported they were going to have and saying that they had a couple of uh, uh, blow, you know, they had a couple of train wreck wells. I think that was the word, word for word deal, which happens in every oil company. The difference we have with Pioneer is we have actually an honest CEO at Pioneer going out and talking about what it is to be an oil and gas company. Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day and saying that, you know, I'm wondering, um, obviously going public, there's pros and cons to it, but, um, you know, you saw, I think it was um, Ham came out and said that he's no longer going to go off of credit lines. He's going to operate off of cash. Simerex is operating off of cash now. Um, it seems like these companies that are operating off of cash are a little bit more efficient because they have to be, A, but the, the, their stocks can be a little bit more steady just because of the fact that they, they're they working off cash. And so I'm, I'm thinking that shell producers are going to have to pick that up just because, like you say, you come out with a report that's not really that bad. But it's like, oh, my gracious, you know, your stock takes a beating. So it'd be an interesting trend to see what happens, which leads me to where I want to go next is, um, I'm sorry, hedges. It seems like there's a lot of hedging that's early for 2018. It's already going out for the first quarter of 2018. You're seeing a lot of companies are hedging out at 50, which would lead me to believe that there's not a lot of optimism that the market will even break 50 next year. Well, I think that if you t- if you look at the forward curves, you know, the forward curves are not wildly optimistic about what the price is going to be in, in, a, in a 2018 or 2019. And I do think that, uh, you know, the reality is I think uh, every shale operator today wants to cover, wants to know that what they're drilling will get paid up, will be paid for, uh, you know, at least through their cash flows and what they have. And if you can, if you can hedge out for two years today, you should be close to being able to, you know, come to your break-even date with regards to those wells you're doing. And so I think that w- the, exactly what you're seeing with regards to kind of that, you know, backing up on their skis and not getting too far over, on the, really hedging is exactly the same thing. It's just a different way of manifesting itself. Do you think, though, that's going to put a pressure on producers who aren't, pre- who aren't hedging um, that are going to look at it and go, okay, well, you have a pioneer, a bigger company who's going to continue their drilling program, um, and I don't, I don't have the list of who's all hedged out so far, but smaller producers who can't make money unless the price is a little bit higher, is that going to lead to maybe another run at um, companies who are getting bought up in, uh, through M&A process in 2018? You know, I, uh, I think that a lot of the guys that can't make money at this are figuring out how to make money at what they're trying to, you know, whatever you're trying to go do. And I think it's, uh, you know, clearly there's a, lot of, there's a lot of easy production to bring on if we get to 70 barrels. If 70 barrels a day starts to make U.S. look a lot like it did in 2015, you know, 2004, I mean 2014 before everything happened. And, uh, and I think that 
is a huge buffer mechanism with regards to doing that because there's so much of, of I, what I call assembly line oil to be brought on, you know, at those prices today. And uh, so I think that, you know, 50, you know, 50, 55. Well, you, you bring that number up, 50, 55, the break-even price. It's one of the things that, that seems like if you look at the media, there's always talking about a break-even price. Um, for my listeners, I've kind of my, my take is the break-even price is probably more myth than it is reality. There's a lot of factors that go into it from company to company who could be drilling next door to each other. And so, um, you know, we, we talk about the break-even price of the Eagle Ford, the break-even price of the Permian. It is helpful on some level just to kind of have a, a, a rough number. But it, give me your opinion. You've been doing this. This is what you guys do. You have all these numbers, all this data. Give me the real lowdown on what the break-even price actually means and how valuable is it. Well, I've never liked the idea of, of the concept of a break-even price to begin with for exactly what you said. And that is uh, we were we proved back in 2007 and 2007 and 2008 in the in the in the in the Barnett that given exactly the same rocks one operator could make 40 percent more than an average operator and three or four times as much as a bad operator based off of what they were doing now that that differential has shrunk over time because people have been fast followers a lot better than they were early days but the difference, difference still is between a great operator and an average operator is 30%. For the dollar spent, being able to get a 30% better return than, than another one. And so when I see, when they say break-even price, what's break-even price? There's kind of an intrinsic one for the area, and then there's a break-even one for who owns that. And you can see, and, and what happens when the price is low, it strips out the guys that can't make money at it and hopefully pushes those assets into the hands of the people that can make money. And that's why, you know, this whole deal is the first time in the history of the oil patch we have this concept of a marginal operator. You know, that works in every other industrial business, but it's never applied to the oil and gas industry. You know, we our differentials have always been cost of capital. And the difference between that is, well, somebody's got a 3% cost of capital relative to a 20% cost of capital. And, uh, you know, with these kind of operational differentials, you're dealing with not not between not a you know 15% spread. You're dealing with 50% spreads. Absolutely. So I want to bring this into to Texas a little bit, but um, but also globally here. So so one of the things you see a lot is you see these articles, um, you know, the Permian versus OPEC, and there's a lot of debate, and there's groups in Texas who are looking for. Um, you know, for Congress, for President Trump to maybe set a price for imports um, and how that would work. Um, what are your thoughts on what's going on with OPEC? It seems like there's kind of, at one point there was cuts and everyone's for it. Now it's a little bit of a mixed message and what's going to happen moving forward. Obviously you have the Ramco IPO that's coming out next year that's going to um, play into some factors. And then you have the Texas producers who seem like um, some of them are holding on for dear life. Can they survive what's going on uh, in the global market right now? Well, I do think that anybody who's waiting to or putting their head in the sand and trying to stay alive until oil goes back up to 100 or 90 or 80, you know, go figure something else to do. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, your job at this point is to figure out how to be a viable producer at 48 and $50. I mean, period, end of paragraph. And I think that it's... Uh, 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 I wish it was happier news than that, but it is. It, it isn't. And, uh, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has twice in its history said that they're going to uh, not go out and control, you know, not cut production in order to control the price of oil. They've done it twice. And in both cases, the impact 
on Saudi Arabia and the rest of the world was far bigger than they thought it could be. They thought it would be, a, you know, in 1986 when they did it, they thought it was going to be a little movement downwards because, you know, they tried to maintain the price from 83 to 86. And when they said, we're going to let it, we're going to let it, you know, ride, it went from $30 a barrel to $9 a barrel. And, uh, and then this last time when they said, we're going to let the markets determine, it dropped 70%. And the biggest people that have gotten hurt by this have been, Saudi, you know, Saudi Arabia and the other, and, and other, and, and frankly, the rest of OPEC is put into existential crisis by this. So, interesting. Yeah, you, 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 you kind of, that kind of gets lost sometimes is that, you know, Nigeria and these other countries, um, what's going on with them is this, and they got Venezuela right now, who, you know, it, I don't know that it looks like it's heading for the absolute possible worst uh, case scenario, which is very sad for the people there. They've got such good reserves and they're just... They can't get a good, stable government. Um, President Trump, now obviously he said a lot of things. Um, some people like, some people don't like, you know. But one of the things he has said is that he's going to open up federal lands onshore. Specifically, there's been a lot of talk about that. You know, I've kind of gone back and forth over where this is a good idea or not, especially with low prices. Do we want a lot more drilling? Um, what is your take on, on what, what President Trump has said and, and what he's done? And is it a good thing for the industry? Well, I think that if you take a look at what President Trump has done, you know, he's gone out there and really pushed an America first pro uh, policy with regards to uh, export. And what's the benefit for us has been that the one place that, you know, where we are exporting now is in the last, because we have legally for the last year and a half is oil. And, uh, and so for any of these countries that actually need hydrocarbons and need oil, the easy thing for them to do to help balance the trade balance is to accept oil in return for them being able to sell into our markets. And that is the one thing that's been happening in a big way. So that has been a great bullet for him to be able to utilize on this stuff. We still are awash. You know, we bring in the federal stuff. And to be able to go and pull all that in there, you know, you look at the statistics on the federal lands, and they are unbelievably under you know underdeveloped or underexplored relative to private lands in this country. And based off of the, the rules and stipulations we put on, you know, federal lands. But I think across the board, opening things up for more work is a big deal. And his, right now he has a record of, uh, for every new regulation that's been come on, he's taken 16 off. And we are seeing, we are seeing companies from all over Europe and the world coming here to set up manufacturing capacity, Petro petrochemicals, man all sorts of different manufacturing, bringing jobs you know, what are the latest numbers? A million jobs to the United States? And this, this is foreign capital setting up, setting up manufacturing in the United States because right now we look like we're going to have the low-cost energy of the world, and we have a labor force that's well-educated and be able to go do these things. And, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and we're getting rid of these regulatory hurdles that take nine years to get something built. These are the things that are driving people crazy because I think all of us in America believe in a good regulatory system and a regulatory system that solves the problems that it sets out to do. What we don't want is a punitive regulatory system or a regulatory system that is designed to put the hands of capacity of everything into the hands of the federal government.
No, I think you're right. I think one of the things we said on the show is is that oil and gas professionals, um, wherever you're at, when we make a mistake as oil and gas professionals, we need to own it. Say, hey, this is us. This is on us. Because if we don't, we try to cover it up. We try to act like something didn't happen. Then the federal government comes in. And when they come in, they don't come in and just do with what you want them to do. They're going to they're going to overstep and overreach, and there's going to be more regulation. Uh, it seems like the oil and gas industry um, at times has kind of tried to shy away and, and cover up some of its misnomers. And, that's, and, and also, we're not very good at getting our message out there, which is part of the reason we do one of these shows. Right, we don't we don't get our message out there, and people forget. One of my contingents is, is if you get outside of the oil and gas industry, if you're in um, Iowa or wherever, um, and you think about oil and gas, you think about it from a couple perspectives. One, you turn on the news and they talk about the, the price of oil trading. So this is a commodity trading. Two, uh, the Middle East and what's going on with the war there or whatever's going on there, some kind of conflict. Or three, an environmental disaster. So you don't think about folks like myself and like yourself that are in the industry, just normal folks working, trying to provide a living, and we're doing a, a good job in our opinion. And so we kind of lose the ability to, to get that message. And, and, and like you pointed out with the federal government and what they're going to do um, is they're, they're going to lay the hammer to us if we're not careful, especially when we have uh, missteps. But on that, Trump, I want to get back to that. Um, we've talked on the show a lot about Mexico and what, what role it's going to play. Natural gas. It seems like the Eagle Fruit is really primed to sell natural gas to Mexico. Mexico needs it. It looks like they're probably five to ten years away from being able to develop their, their infrastructure to drill the wells they need to drill. And um, are you are you um, encouraged, I guess you should say, that Trump will be able to, to make those negotiations? Because some of his stance towards Mexico may give you some pause to cons- for concern if you're in the U.S., you're in Texas, you're looking to build to Mexico. Mexico needs cheap natural gas, and Texas is the uh, the most uh, obvious source of cheap natural gas. And uh, I don't really see. Uh, I think that there can be a lot of kabuki uh, pol- political dance around all this. But at the end of the day, uh, what's good for Mexico is Texas natural gas, absolutely. And they need a lot of it. You know that the, these numbers you know, you're hearing five, six, seven, eight, nine BCF a day relative to U.S. production of 70, 71 BCF a day, that is substantive. And that is, you know, to me, from a, from a bullish perspective in terms of that, uh, the, the parts are lining up for me to say that, you know, the United States is, especially Texas, is going to be in good shape with regards to natural gas pricing relative to oil. I think you might see a little bit of a, uh, you know, maybe a diminution of that 20 to 1 uh, uh, differential we've seen for such a long time. Yeah, and natural gas has just had a little bit uh, longer to recover after its big, you know, fall from grace. That was, I remember working through that, and that was, there was some long, sad days. <laughs> we were working for Chesapeake at the time, and, you know, I was looking at their stock. I was trying to tell somebody the other day their stock price. It was like 69, and, you know, within like four months, it was like 13, and I was telling someone about it. It's hard to, it's just, you go back and you, you relive those days, and it's just, Ooh. This crazy time, right? <laughs> you know. Um, so let's talk about drilling info um, and what you guys, you know, um, it's a name that you hear a lot, but it may not be something everybody fully knows what you guys offer, what you what you're about, what your uh, core business is. So why don't you kind of lay that out for the listeners? All right. Well, I think even people that have been using drilling info for 17 years probably don't know what we're fully about, and uh, and I think we have a lot of salespeople and we have a lot of people in the company, and oftentimes that don't know everything that we're doing. So it's uh, uh, but essentially, uh, drilling info was founded <clears throat> 17 years ago actually 18 years ago today, and uh, we were all independent oil and gas producers. So I came from the geology geophysics side. I had a seismic company. I shot 3D seismic surveys in return for working interest. Yeah, dumb ass me. I thought we should have taken a royalty, but you know, I didn't, <laughs> didn't really understand the whole ramification of that. Uh, my friend Mark was a, a Mark Niblink. You know, was a prospect generator geologist. Uh, Bill Fowler 
was a landman by background, was an independent uh, uh, producer down in South Texas. And Martin Payne uh, was an independent producer, uh, was a, a drilling engineer by background, and an, and an independent producer out of East Texas. So we kind of got together and built what we wanted to have as an independent producer, something that gave us a lot of you know, power. One of the things we were talking about was, at the time, if you were, uh, you worked, you know, a, a railroad district or, a, you know, a couple of counties or what have you, because you really understood the geology, you understood the services, you understood what you had in there. But you had no way of being able to compare what you were doing relative to the rest of the states. So the idea of being a small independent oil company and operating all over the United States was unheard of. You know, you had to have... You were a mid-sized oil company in order to do that. You had to, the way that you got into other places was to hire a whole lot of smart people that had worked in all these areas and bring in kind of a, a, a you know, a, a critical mass of people that knew a particular basin or play to be able to even get in there. And what we, and I don't think people quite realize, 18 years ago, that's the way it was. Wait, so you're saying 18 years ago the oil and gas industry was just as secretive as it is today? <laughs> just to see. And everybody had their little backyard they played in. And we were looking at saying, you know, transparency would be good for this. I want to know, if, I, if I'm going to pick these four counties that I'm going to work, I want to know how, they're, how they compare from a return on investment point of view relative to the rest of the place. I want to know all the plays that are coming about that actually have better ROIs in mind. And I want to be able to understand those. And I want to find out if something that I learned in this play over here might translate into this play over here and just kind of open up open up a lot of ways of doing business that just didn't exist back then and you know and you know our original system we had to we had to use uh, dial up uh, you know it was the, the software that we you know we, it was uh, drilling info was all on a was on a you know f- dial up modem you know it was kind of crazy so you you started out as a producer you went into drilling info uh, you're, you're trying to figure out a better way to do this thing which is what we're all trying to do i think on some level um dial-up modems now we have you know me, uh, we have big data we have you know high-speed internet gis has come you know into the forefront how much has the business changed over the past 17 years obviously on some level the core of what you wanted to do is still available but i'm sure there's a, a lot more data sets now that you can get access to that you can acquire and a lot more way to a lot more ways you can look at the data analyze and and, and visualize data i mean absolutely we've we've that was really one of the reasons we built this really cool platform it was a very robust platform and uh, it was really built for the low bandwidth world and uh, you can still access that today we still have a huge number of people that refuse to ever leave it because they they know it and love it uh, but that's the reason that we re-engineered our platform altogether to take advantage of these uh, you know much bigger data sets the ability, ability to move data a lot easier and to analyze data from a very robust point of view. We were the very first people to go out and look at an unconventional play from a statistical point of view. Very first. Wow. So, if for my listeners, they say, "Okay, I'm, go- I'm going to drillinginfo.com." If they're on the, if they're a producer or if they're a service side, let's break it down. Why would a service provider call drilling info? What what benefits might they get? What tools might they want to inquire about? And what are some of the things that make you say, "Okay, hey," because uh, sometimes when you call a company and you say, "I want to buy your product," and you don't realize that you think you want to buy product A, but it's really product C that they have that actually is a little bit more curtailed, or they can customize the product solution. So walk us through that process from both sides of the coin. So as we as we re-engineered our whole product suite, 
it became very important for us to be able to modularize everything we had. We used to just throw everything, you know, everything in the bathwater. So every year we took all the money we had, we, we bought new data sets, or we did this out of there, and we all threw it in there, and we charged people 10% more or something like that. But it was, you know, so it was the idea that the problem was at a certain point people quit understanding what they were getting or they weren't using all the other things and saying, well, I don't want to get charged 10% more. And I can understand that. Uh, you know, so we had to kind of rethink about how we were doing this, and we started looking at it. You know, it was kind of optimized for the uh, ENP companies to begin with, but we had people using it for mineral management. We had people using it from uh, uh, oil field services. We had people from uh, uh, from the finance sector, and then we decided that what we were going to do is look at each of these as separate businesses because their needs are different from one another, and go out there and manage those separately. So that way we can modularize that, that need. Because just to exactly what you were saying, calling up and saying, I want A, when you really want C, and you might be able to get C for less money than what you could get A for. So uh, that's why we, you know, all of our sales folks and our, our account folks are all very focused on asking a lot of questions to help you walk into exactly the right thing and understand what you might have available to you, whether you need it now or not. And uh, and and I because I do agree with you that is you know I'll give you an example the oil field services why would an oil field service company use drilling info? Well, I, I was about to tell you why I would want to use drilling info. I was going to ask Perfect. you this question. So if I was going to use drilling info, my my question would be is a where are the rigs at, who's drilling, and how much information can you give me about that company? Because for for what I would do is as an engineering surveying land acquisition firm, I'm just trying to figure out who's working and where they're working at. Now each company is going to have a little bit different question, but that would be where I'd be coming from. Is saying, okay, hey, uh, I need to know who's drilling in the Permian, who's drilling over here in this county. I drove by there's a rig here the other day. How do I get that information and who what the, what is the company? So that would be my question if I was going to solicit the business. That would be what I would want to know. Now our, our listeners probably have a different background, but that that would be my 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 questions. I'd start. Okay, with. well, that, I think it's perfect, yeah, perfect, uh, perfect question because. So today, Drilling Info is a multi-platform deal. It's, you know, you get on, you can log on to your website and go, go do, you know, our website and go look at it on your computer. You can also access it from your mobile phone. You can access it from your tablet. When you're driving out to the field and you've got the mobile phone, it'll tell you driving directions to the, to the farm road as to, uh, you know, which, how you're going to get there and what have you. You have places to put in uh, the gate combos if you don't, uh, you know, if, you know, if you're going to use it within your company and stuff like that so that you can share knowledge within your company to do these things. And just what you were saying, you know, permits, everybody used to say, well, permits. Well, permits was a, were a joke, really. It was, that was a notification that someone else already had the job. And <clears throat> we know who's out there. We know how big their opportunity is. We know whether it's a one-well type of deal or whether it could potentially be a 10,000-well opportunity. Uh, we also keep up with all the things that they're doing, you know. We, we have detailed information on all the chemicals they're using and all the different kind of equipment that they're using and things like that, you know, in their, in their operations, who they're buying it from, uh, you know, who's selling what to who, things like that. There's, a, there's such a rich amount of information there. And even on our, on our land side, on some of our courthouses, since we get the whole courthouse, one of the things that some of our guys, you know, some of our oil field service companies have been doing is, uh, you know, looking for contractor liens. Well, well, okay, so that's where I was going to go next. Right, that's where I was going to go next. So if, if, you, if I bought your data and I said, okay, great, and then all of a sudden I start turning this into business, I'm actually making money. Well, now I'm going to call you back up and say, okay, uh, because of your service, I was able to land um, Anadarko or Semerex or whoever, 
And so now I'm going to have landmen out there. I'm going to have surveyors out there. We're going to be doing all this stuff. How can you help me with that? Because, see, it would seem like you're going to have more data as I go through my process, of my, my sales process, because I want to go back to the client and tell client either, A, you can buy this data from me, or, B, I, I can hook up with drilling info. And then the client looks at it and goes, oh, my gracious, this is, this is more information. And it makes me look good because I'm just connecting with you. So it seems like there's probably a step two for my business that I don't want to come back around. Yeah, we like a, uh, we think that well-informed oil field service companies or anybody providing services in the business, the more informed they are, the better partner they are to the businesses they serve. And I think that the, I think the old school world of, of vendor and you know, you know, purchaser and vendor, really is appropriately leaving and what's coming in is someone I trust to go partner up to go provide these things to the things that I'm doing and uh, you know that's that's what we would like to see the world turn into and, and and that means that people have to be knowledgeable you know it's not just gonna be you know well I played golf with Fred and he's gonna give me a, you know give me the next bids over there it's far better to sit there and say great I love the fact that you're playing you know golf with Fred but you should go in there and say, Fred, have you thought about this, this, and this? And here's how we can cut your overall cost with doing your business out here by 20%. And here's what we're prepared to do to come in there. Make Fred a hero, too. Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring that up. One of the things I tell my salespeople is if you're going to go meet a new company, I want you, if they're publicly traded, go look up the stock price. Go look up the quarterly earnings. Go look at the drilling permits. Go look up all you know. And, and, then, and then when you walk into the person's office, take a look. See what's all around there. Because you never know. Um, what bit of information the the prospective client is wanting to hear from you, but you have to have it, and so we have to be uh, you know you're an athlete, a student of the game. We have to be students of the game now. So because there's, anytime you have a big boom, especially a big boom cycle like we've had two in the last decade, uh, you have a lot of new people who come in. And then when when they start to fade away, you're not really sure, okay, were these people who just came in because there was a lot of work going on or are these people who actually know what they're talking about? So educating yourself is, is a big part of the process. Um, so drillinginfo.com, and they can go there. You have a full sales staff. Um, they can call. Is there a number that you want to call or just go to the contact page on the website? Contact page on the website, and we have people standing by. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they are uh, happy to help. And, uh, you know, and frankly – uh, the benefit of a kind of, of business or a so that software as a service industry is, is such that I really care far less about making a sale than I do about making sure it's a recurring relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, for the listeners, we're going to link to that in the show notes, Drilling Info. If you haven't heard of it, you're one of the few, but we will link to it anyway so you can get there. And also, as we mentioned, we're going to be adding to the website, probably not by the time this recording comes out, but by the next Texas Oil and Gas podcast, we're going to have a link to the active uh, drilling report, uh, recount, sorry, so that you can go to the website and you can see it there. And you can also add it to your website. It's nothing exclusive that we have. You guys are offering it. It's a really great service. One of those things you go back to, you say, hey, Client X, we, we are on the cutting edge. We are paying attention. We are watching what's happening. So it's a great service. And one of the things that you're going to be able to access through that rig count is going to be what we call the DI index. And what that is, is it's a, it uses the rig count, but it also uses all the wells that have been drilled around it in the last two or three years. And it comes up with what we call a producibility index. So it's like of the wells that were drilled, whether they're ducks or real or what have you, here's the amount of producibility that's coming on. And is it going up or is it going down? 
Well, that would be good information to have. I'm sure I'll spend too much time looking at it. Uh, one final thing before I let you go. Uh, we didn't get the chance to get to this, but we're running out of time. You are the chairman of TIPRO. What's your role there? And really uh, kind of go over that real quick for us. Yeah, uh, yeah. thanks for bringing that up. I am the chairman of the Texas Independent Producers and Royalty Owners Association, TIPRO. It's the oldest uh, independent uh, producing organization in the United States. And uh, it is. Uh, it does all the behind the scenes yeoman's work to make sure that you as an oil field as, as an oil company or as an oil field service company still have a job tomorrow and it, and you know i think 10 or 15 years 20 years ago it probably uh they fought interesting fights was how to you know making sure that operators you know tipro was the leader in terms of making sure that operators were clean that they ran clean operations that they didn't abandon wells without covering you know without plugging them and what have you uh you know good operations guys uh and then today though we're living in a world right now where there are literally people that are very powerful that want to kill this industry in the united states and the legislation that gets proposed has all sorts of bombs built into it that uh could could essentially shut down the industry and we see these in every legislative session and uh, we have teams of guys are going out there and trying to find these things and making sure that they don't happen. And it's terrifying. I mean, it's like playing three-dimensional chess, but it's, you know, Russian roulette every, every legislative session. And uh, uh, it, uh, the people that are doing this are, are heroes in my mind. And, uh, and, the, and the, in, in the independents that, that support us, um, we're there for them every day. And those that get active, involved in our committees, are heroes. I, I love them. Well, we will link to Tipro's website in the show notes as well. I, don't, I think it's I think it's Tipro.org off the top of my head, and we will link to that in the show notes as well for the listeners. So they can go check that out if they're not familiar. Um, you know, I'm, we're down here at NAEP, and so you know, this is one of the reasons I like going to NAEP. You can actually find out actionable intelligence, and uh, not through interviews, not just through uh, interviews like this, but walking around on the floor. And what I said last time was that the thing that I, I, I learned the most was I'd walk through the booths one time, and I'd say, okay, these booths that have this type of acreage, there's a lot of people around them. Let me go back again in an hour, Absolutely. and then they'd still be there. And then there were certain booths that never had anybody show up. And I'd go by and say, how's it going? How's it going? Oh, it's going kind of slow. Okay. You didn't sell your acreage and you're not done already. You're, you're, just no one's interested. So for me as a, a oil and gas professional trying to make a living and trying to get my, my salespeople out there, that's 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 in, inside information that you can't get anywhere else. I know that companies are going to go try to buy this acreage and work in these areas. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're excited to be at NAPE, and uh, we will be uh, happy to add the drilling info stuff to our site and for our listeners. And so thank you for all you've done and for TIPRO as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.